from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with John Colsto on April 30, 2018. John's a writer and author of several books. His latest work is called Compassionate Woman, The Life and Legacy of Patricia Locke. He explains what inspired him to write about Patricia Locke and reads excerpts from his work. I started the interview by asking John where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in North Dakota as a member of the uh, what was then called the Evangelical Lutheran Church, is now called the uh, or the Norwegian Lutheran Church, now the Evangelical Lutheran Church. I very quickly realized that uh, I was a Lutheran by accident of birth rather than by uh, any decisions, and uh, I uh, wondered why others uh, were thought of as uh, second class. When I was in college, I saw an article about some house of worship north of Chicago that welcomed people of all religions. And I thought, this I got to see. It was during the Vietnam War. And I realized that if I was drafted, which was very unlikely, uh, I'd go anywhere. But if I enlisted in the Navy, they'd send me to uh, the Great Lakes Training Center, which was near this house of worship north of Chicago that I could go visit. So I joined the Navy for four years. I discovered later that there was an easier way to get to Chicago, but that's all right. It worked out well. Anyway, uh, that's where uh, I first encountered the Baha'i faith and uh, became a Baha'i during the time that, that I was in the Navy. Were you active in the church up until you found the Baha'i faith, or was there a progression that took you from realizing that the Lutheran church was not what spoke to you and that you were in a mode of search? What was that process? I was very active in the church and uh, was involved with a lot of things when I was in college. I was president of the uh, Lutheran Students Association and so forth. But before that, when I was in confirmation class, the pastor showed a pie chart of the religions of the world. And there was a tiny sliver of blue that was called Protestant. And I knew that we were right and everybody else was wrong, but we didn't even get a slot of our own. We were just part of the Protestant sliver. The pastor uh, said that we should pray and work very hard, that the blue would cover the whole um, pie chart. And I thought, that's nonsense. I'm a Lutheran because my parents are Lutheran. And really, looking at that chart, such an insignificant minority of mankind, how can the tiny minority be right and everybody else wrong? And so that's when I really started uh, looking into things. Uh, when I was in high school, I had to list the uh, 10 most important people of the world. And I listed uh, among them was uh, Christ and Muhammad and the Buddha, because I felt they had made, all three made enormous impacts. Uh, when I was a senior, they had to write an English paper for preparation for college. And I, at that time, that was during the Calcutta uprising. And I talked, wrote about the, uh, uh, even though I didn't know anything about it, about Hindu-Muslim relations in India. And I always figured there had to be something bigger than what I had seen. 
And when I saw this ad about, or this article, a very short article about the temple that welcomed people of all religions, uh, that, that just resonated with me. So I'm speaking with John Colstow, author of several books, his most recent one being Compassionate Woman, The Life and Legacy of Patricia Locke. So John, why don't you tell folks who Patricia Locke is and what inspired you to write a book about her? Yeah, Patricia Locke is the only person that I have known who has both been the recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award and inducted to the National Women's Hall of Fame. So those two things alone uh, uh, show this is someone worth paying attention to. I actually knew her son, Kevin, and a few years after uh, she died, I was visiting with Kevin at the uh, Standing Rock Reservation in uh, uh, South Dakota, and there was a portrait of his mother on the wall, and I said, who's writing a biography about your mother? And he said, well, no one is. I will so somebody should. So that was the beginning of it. I felt very strongly that it should be an Indian to do the writing. So I got in touch with uh, Tuttle from Canada, a Mi'kmaq Indian who had done her PhD thesis on ethnomusicology and had done some basic research on Kevin's work. And so I got in touch with Pauline. We agreed to have a meeting, and so when uh, Pat was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, uh, her granddaughter was going to uh, school in Utica, New York, at Cornell, studying law. So we had a meeting at her granddaughter's house, and we sort of agreed then to uh, work on things together. Uh, The next step was that Kevin and Pauline and I had several telephone conversations, and Kevin had a uh, gig in uh, Washington and I had a a workshop that I was giving in uh, uh, southern Washington and Pauline was living in uh, on uh, Vancouver Island and so we agreed to meet in Washington at a time that was convenient well at the last moment Pauline called and said she couldn't go because of medical reasons so Kevin and I went to her place uh, on Vancouver Island and uh, she had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer and so what was to be a uh, brainstorming project on uh, Pat Locke's biography turned out to be a healing session for uh, Pauline. And I, uh, that, that was a wonderful experience by itself. But anyway, she died. And so then I was kind of left with the job of putting things together. And that's how it got started. So I'm speaking with John Colstow, author of the book, Compassionate Woman, The Life and Legacy of Patricia Locke. So John, what should people know about Patricia that should move them to read about her? Well, there are several high points in her life. I list four of them that are particularly important. In 1969, she was given her uh, Indian name, uh, I can't pronounce it correctly, a good-hearted woman or compassionate woman. She has good conscience, otherwise they'd be translated into English. But that was just among her many accolades, but it was the one that she very cherished most. 1991, recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Award for Genius, program director said in his notes about her, Pat Locke personified the spirit of our program by carrying out her work in education with creativity, dignity, and skill. A mutual friend of ours who happened to know one of the judges for the MacArthur Foundation was speaking with her confidentially, and this woman just 
told uh, this mutual friend that when she saw the file, immediately was apparent that she was deserved uh, was deserved to be a recipient. She was the first American Indian woman elected to the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States. And she also was elected to a senior post as being vice chairman. She was inducted posthumously into the National Women's Hall of Fame, one of 10 people inducted that year for a total of 217 since its creation in 1959. It was set up in honor of the first Women's Rights Conference in 1848. And uh, it was fascinating to be there at the induction ceremony. So these are some of the outstanding things about her life. I'll give you just a, uh, a little bit of a background. It's interesting that her father was a Chippewa Indian, her mother Lakota. And at the time that she was born, she was born in Idaho in 1923. Uh, it was unusual for Indians to be working in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but both her mother and father were her, her father uh, was working for the Bureau itself. Her mother was working for the Indian Health Service. From early on, they would sneak away to various Indian ceremonies for which they could be fired if they were caught. But they wanted their, their two daughters to be acutely aware of both their um, Indian heritage as, as well as the white man's ways. And they moved quite often every few years to various uh, locations, mainly in the West, as her father was transferred from place to place. She had quite a broad experience on a number of Indian reservations. However, it was not typical. Well, let me put it the other way. Bureau of Indian Affairs employees had housing located close to the administrative offices, and they were not encouraged to commingle particularly with the people on the reservation. And so as a result, uh, her uh, uh, upbringing was uh, interesting. She had a taste of different Indian tribes, but never sort of interacted. And her father being Chippewa and her mother being Lakota, the language in the home was English. Whenever the relatives would visit, she'd pick up a little bit of Lakota or a little bit of Chippewa, but she never felt that she mastered the language. In fact, she one time said that her uh, Lakota was her primary language, uh, other than English, was at about a sixth grade level. In the 1960s, she was in Alaska, and a lot of uh, natives were coming into uh, Anchorage for jobs and whatnot. And she was the first one to open up what was called a welcome house to help uh, the Indians, Aleuts, and Eskimos who were coming into Anchorage to find employment and, and other things. In her words, she had lived in a capsule before that, and that brought her out into activism. I might add, before that, she attended UCLA in the 1940s. And at that time, there were only, well, she was the only American Indian student there. No, there were two others, I'm sorry. But there were only a half a dozen Indians going to uh, colleges throughout the United States in the 1940s. She earned a degree in English, anthropology, geology, physical education, and education, despite being academically suspended at one time. She had to uh, work, put herself through school, but she still found time to join the aquatic uh, swimming team, and she was on uh, the aquatic ballet team, and she gave tennis lessons and did a whole lot of other things, but her academics suffered. And so she was suspended, but then at the end of her probationary period, they, or they allowed her to come back to UCLA on probation. 
And it's kind of interesting that uh, after that record, she not only graduated with honors, but was at one time on the faculty of UCLA, which was quite a shift. The thing that was most involved with her getting the Genius Award was the fact that she was responsible, not singularly, I don't mean to say that at all, but the work she was doing enabled her to help establish uh, 17 colleges on Indian reservations. And uh, this was a major step forward in Indian education. A couple of other things here. She had more than 30 publications. She wrote 40 articles for the Mulbridge Tribune. As the editor said that he saw in her a bridge between the uh, Mulbridge, was basically a white community, and the reservation, which is uh, the bridge across the the, uh, Missouri River or Lake Oahu. In the middle of the bridge, there's a sign that shows a a change of time zone. But there's more that changes in the time zone than just going across that bridge. Larry Atkins, the... uh, editor saw in Pat uh, the brilliance that would be able to bridge the gap and explain a bit of the uh, Lakota culture to the uh, white population. The South Dakota tourist website listed two outstanding Lakota, one living, one dead. The dead one was Sitting Bull, the living one was Pat Locke. So that shows the esteem to which she was, uh, was held. So I'm speaking with John Colstow, who wrote a biography on Patricia Locke entitled Compassionate Woman, The Life and Legacy of Patricia Locke. John, do you know the story of Patricia becoming a Baha'i? Her son, Kevin, had been a Baha'i. Kevin was asked to join with a group of other American Indian Baha'is to go on a teaching trip, Camino del Sol it was called, into South America. Patricia, who was not a Baha'i, invited herself to go along. Jacqueline Left Hand Bull was in charge of the uh, trip. That was really the first time that she had encountered Pat, and she said she was scared to death because Pat had such a reputation that, in Jackie's words, she thought she'd end up as mashed potatoes being uh, with this dominant woman. But instead, they found the warmest relationship, and they were really very much close to one another. And they were in uh, a village high in the Andes. And as they approached the place, a harrowing trip going up there. As they uh, got up there, they could hear drumming as they approached. And the village was primarily Baha'i. They were greeting people. And uh, Baha'is in the village were greeting with a term which is typical of Baha'is, Allah Oabha, which is an Arabic term. God is all glorious. But anyway, uh, Pat would respond by uh, good to meet you, some some of these terms. And uh, Jacqueline was standing right behind her. And about halfway through the line, she started answering in a la And Jacqueline felt that was the moment when she became a Baha'i. Technically, it was a little different because she wanted to learn more about the faith. And she asked Kevin and he gave her some books and, and so on. But she wanted to go to a meeting cause, uh, to meet more Baha'is. And there was a national convention coming up. And so Kevin invited her to, to go to the meet, to the National Convention. And as they were driving to Bismarck to catch the plane, Kevin was explaining a little bit about it. said, oh, by the way, you won't be able to get into the sessions. You can get a visit with people outside, but only Baha'is are allowed to get into the sessions. And Pat said, what do I have to do to get into the sessions? And Kevin said, enroll as a Baha'i. And she said, how do I do that? 
and Kevin pulled out an enrollment card and handed it to her so she was able to attend the sessions and meet more of the Baha'is at the National Convention. Pat did a lot of things in a rather unorthodox way. But I want to give a little bit of a snippet. The opening chapter of the book talks about her funeral. And it's a very short one, and if you don't mind, I'd like to read that. The first sentence is, they came from every direction, but there's an asterisk there because to the traditional Lakota, directions are more than points on a compass. They speak of the four sacred directions, each associated with sacred color as well as songs. Each color has many symbols, meanings, including specific characteristics of the great spirit, as well as representing all the races and ethnic groups of humanity and everything that lives in those regions. The two-legged, the four-legged, the winged, the finned ones, the crawling ones, as well as earth itself. Reference to the four directions suggests the interconnectedness and sacredness of all creation. And so when I say they came from every direction, it really means more than points in a compass. There were Native Americans, Latinos, Asians, blacks and white. Some people pooled their meager resources to drive over a thousand miles and slept in their cars to save expenses. Others flew to Phoenix and stayed in comfortable hotels. There were highly educated and illiterate people of wealth, many who knew poverty well. Some had penetrating insight and broad vision. There were others of limited capacity. Some viewed life with a radiant spirit, while others saw the world darkly. There were laborers, skilled and unskilled, doctors, artists, students, lawyers, hairdressers, artisans, carpenters, entrepreneurs, educators, masons, business executives, secretaries, judges, craftsmen, and the chronically unemployed. All came to pay homage to Patricia Ann McGillis Locke, known to many as the Watson Washington, compassionate woman who had touched the lives of everyone there in so many ways. It was her funeral, but the diversity of those who came was an eloquent testament of her life. The proceedings were broadcast live over KLND, the radio station of her home on the Standing Rock Reservation, which she helped found and for which she had labored as a board member for so many years. People who could not attend listened for three hours to the many relatives and friends who came forward to pay their respects and give tributes. Who was this Lakota woman of humble origin for whom obstacles were the ladder of life? Against all odds, she got a college education. She was a leader and spokesperson on behalf of the downtrodden of all ethnic groups. She was instrumental in establishing 17 colleges on Indian reservations and helped empower tribes to establish their own school curricula. She fought for native language preservation, the environment, the rights of women, native rights, self-determination, and heritage preservation. As an adult, she left the advantages of urban living and moved to the Standing Rock Reservation, the open prairies of her roots. Even though her arduous travel schedule was made more difficult by this relocation to the rural prairies of South Dakota, during her lifetime, she and Sitting Bill were listed by a South Dakota Department of Tourism brochure as the two most outstanding Sioux Indians. I want to make a mention of that in just a moment. She accomplished so much while being a devoted mother and grandmother. In addition, she was well known for taking in stray dogs and feeding anyone who showed up at her door. When asked how she got the MacArthur Genius Award, her stock answer was because I fed the dogs. <laughs> the thing I want to call further attention to is the word Sioux 
many people think is a Chippewa word, which means snake in the grass or a lowly one, a cheater. Or other experts think that it's an Algonquin word, which means simply those who speak a different language. What are known as Sioux are really by themselves called Lakota or Dakota or Nakota, which means ally or friend. And they much prefer that than the pejorative Sioux as a name for themselves, although by outsiders generally refer to them as Sioux. So I'm speaking with John Colstow, who is reading from his book, Compassionate Woman, The Life and Legacy of Patricia Locke. John, do you have another interesting story about her that you could read? Oh, yes. This is lovely. Let me see if I can find it here. When uh, early years, that's it. When Pat and her sister were too young to go to school, their working parents found a reliable, responsible person to take care of them. He was a Shoshone medicine man. They were living in Utah at the time. He was a Shoshone medicine man named Tagwitz. Pat recalled an incredible story from those early years. One day, their mother had prepared some soup for Tagwitz, and he was peacefully enjoying it when the overtired little girl sitting on the floor started fussing. Tagwitz tapped the table and sang. As he sang, a broom in the corner of the room danced about the room in time with the singing. The girls stared at the dancing broom. They reached out to grab it, but the broom would dance away. Laughter quickly replaced whining for the girls. When their mood changed, the broom danced back in the corner and Tagwitz finished his soup. Years later, Pat credited the dancing broom for her ability to accept the possibilities of the unbelievable. She felt she never had to suspend belief or intellect to accept the incredible. It also established a lifelong belief in the power of transformation. Here, from the inanimate to the animate, from this experience watching a wooden broom come to life, she was led to, to a question that resonated throughout her life. What are the limits for change? So I'm talking with John Colstow. He's reading from his book, Compassionate Woman, The Life and Legacy of Patricia Locke. John, where can folks find your book? It can be found through uh, Amazon. If you look for my name on Amazon, it's been carried there, and also through the Baha'i Publishing Trust. I want to tell you one more story. Uh, Nominally, they were raised Catholic, but as I mentioned, the parents were very uh, certain that the girls have uh, Indian experiences, so they'd create both. She was concerned about where the Pope got his authority. Now, uh, we didn't get into this, but there's a lot in her heritage about the white buffalo calf woman coming to the Lakota people and changing their ways about, and a peace pipe there that she brought, and still, the, I think it's the 11th holder of the peace pipe still lives in uh, the um, reservation in southern South Dakota. But anyway, she knew the authority for the covenant within the Lakota tradition, but she didn't really know where the Pope got his authority. And so she saved up her babysitting money, and, and while she was asking the local priests and nuns, and they said it was they couldn't really answer her question with any certainty she should go to see the bishop, which lives some distance away. 
So she saved up her money and went to see the bishop. And she sat and waited. She had an appointment tentatively, but she sat and waited and waited and waited and waited. And everybody started to leave at the end of the day. And the bishop started to leave. And so she got up and approached him and said, excuse me, sir, I have a question. And she said, the bishop asked her what that was. And so she stated her question about the authority of the pope. And he said, oh, young lady, I've heard about you. And unless you change your ways, I have no choice but to excommunicate you, which was the end of her becoming a Catholic or being a Catholic. Well, John, I want to thank you for talking with me about your book. I hope folks will read it and appreciate Patricia Locke's legacy. Nice chatting with you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John Colstow, author of the book Compassionate Woman, The Life and Legacy of Patricia Locke. You can find his book on Amazon. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
dream of a life where everyone is free to feel, to think, and even to believe in something more than what they're told to be. The earth and the sky, the wind and the waves and the trees. I dream of a land where no one has to die because of the way they choose to live their life. All my thoughts can only live in the stream. The land I knew is falling apart at the seams. Nara na wash, get ya na ko. Hamishe hasta pa. Dream of a land where no one lives in fear. The one they love would suddenly disappear, and I never knew what I left behind would turn into something I wouldn't recognize.
the enemy, he's got a harsh grip. But when it's got the flips, the script, you're well equipped, spiritual battleship. Bomb with friendship, you never trip like a child. You skip along the path of peace until the scales tip. They try to strip you of nobility, but they're foolish, see, cause your purity streams from your lips. See the end in the beginning, the beginning and the end. In the enemy, find a brother, in the stranger, find a friend. I never had to live those words quite like you do, or my faith defend. But you inspire me to pick up a pen and write verses. Though this is rehearsed from the heart, the world bursts into the seams and falls apart. But through long suffering, you're building the whole thing in you. I want to tell the world about the struggle that you're going through. I know you're going through hardship. I pray to the blessed beauty that he never lets your heart slip. The enemy, he's got a harsh grip. But when it's got the flips, the script, you're well equipped. Spiritual battleship, bond with friendship. You never trip like a child. You skip along the path of peace until the scales tip. They try to strip you of nobility, but they're foolish see. Because your purity streams from your lips. Yo, they can't see that you've been free since you believe. Only fooling themselves when they think you're in captivity. But love is the greatest weapon. It refuses to fight. Only knows how to bring us closer and to show us the light. The guides in darkness when all you see is heartless cruelty. Mirror forth his beauty and I know of a certainty that his providence is disguised as calamity. So after the crisis, there'll always come a victory. I know you're going through hardship. I pray to the blessed beauty that he never lets your heart slip. The enemy, he's got a harsh grip. But when it's got the flips, the script, you're well equipped. Spiritual battleship, bond with friendship. You never trip like a child. You skip along the path of peace until the scales. They try to strip you of nobility, but they're foolish see, because your purity streams from your lips. I know you're going through hardship, hardship, hardship. I know you're going through hardship, hardship, hardship. I know you're going through hardship. Fly away, fly away. 
Be silent. Good. Play. 
call as saving graces lessons Come, powers leave. I crawl into indulgence for reprieve. I wonder if my faith was make Place of wrath and tears, loom 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.